Welcome to the Deck 4 Podcast. There's a companion newsletter on Substack. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr, and our webpage is at georgefairbrother.com. Hope you enjoy the program. Hello, thank you for listening. We're back with part three of our three-part special on Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. Gary, thanks to you, we had a, a really great insight into the music and uh, just the spectacle that was Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. But the juggernaut has rolled on and 12 days after Aloha, Elvis was back at work again in Las Vegas. During that uh, Las Vegas season, which took him through to uh, February the 23rd, the double live album Aloha from Hawaii was released and uh, that uh, went to number one on Bill. Board. Uh, in March, a month later, Steamroller Blues was released as the single, and that went to number 17 on Billboard and number 10 on Cashbox. So, Gary, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the album a little later, but how do you see Steamroller Blues as the single? That's an interesting one to pick from a single. I, I, think, I think also uh, live albums, releasing singles from live albums is always a little bit odd. Two, you get sometimes sparkling performances live. You sometimes get more and better, quote unquote, uh, versions of songs live. Sometimes, sometimes things sound fantastic, and sometimes things just because they don't sound like the studio recording, it throws you off. Now with Steamroller Blues, we didn't really have that problem because he didn't record it in the studio. But it's an interesting one to pick. I guess it was just gritty. It sounded like it would uh, find a place on top 40 radio as opposed to some of the bigger show pieces that we discussed. But I think I made mention of the fact that it's a it's a stellar performance. It's a, it's a great performance of a good song that Elvis handles well. It's intriguing that they picked it. It's a little bit of a flyer, but I can also, I think, understand why. And that's uh, a good it's a good track from King, that's for sure. Do you think they missed a bit of an opportunity? Now, I know If I Can Dream or Suspicious Minds doesn't come around the corner every five minutes, but given the showcase that they had, do you think they might have missed a bit of an opportunity to perhaps come up with another signature era-defining tune? Yeah, that's a really good point you make because there now there's lots of, well, I guess there's a handful of other recordings uh, like Steamroller Blues from the concert that I spoke about, the big hunk of love that was fantastic. Um, I think that uh, if they had released one of the bigger show pieces, not only would it have given listeners an idea of what they were going to get from an Elvis concert, Steamroller Blues may have displayed that as well. But let's face it, something like an American Trilogy or What Now My Love, it's hard to conceive of them as singles, uh, charting on the top 40 or other charts. But I think it would have been a promotion from a promotion angle. He sang them in concert. They were on the album. And if they pushed the single of, of say, an American trilogy or even a My Way, which was you know popular in that day and age, then they might have, they might have missed the boat. But I don't know. I, I think in general, the album was representative of the spectacle. It was the main thing. The single might have been a little bit of bonus promotion, but I wonder if maybe even they wondered if a single would have done 
done much because it was just bonus and extra added, I think. So perhaps, perhaps not. Perhaps they didn't miss the boat there. Perhaps there was no boat to be missed. It really, uh, I mean, it was vindicated really by the chart position, you know, top 20 uh, on Billboard and uh, number 10 on, on Cashbox. So the uh, the success is uh, just building on itself as we go. And we then get to April. And uh, on April 4th was the domestic airing of the expanded television version uh, sponsored by Toyota. It became the highest rating NBC show of 1973, according to PBS, uh, a 33.8% Nielsen rating with a 57% audience share. Now, this is the real time capsule. This is where we really get to see uh, exactly what the audience in 1973 saw. NBC Wednesday Mystery Movie will not be seen tonight, but will return in two weeks at its regular time. Now, a special program in living color on NBC. I thought... The opening of it was was brilliant. I thought it just built the excitement where you had the Morse code and you had the helicopter uh, arrival and then you had this real carnival atmosphere at the arena and lots of happy, smiling, excited faces. I would agree, and I think it was clever, whether it was by design or that there was no overblown, bloated sort of uh, opening monologue for those who might have, might know... Howard Cosell introducing Frank Sinatra at Madison Square Garden. I think it was a year later in 74. He's drowned out by the orchestra. He's droning on in his Howard Cosell way. Something perhaps is is lost. I like the idea of the images just telling the whole story. I mean, what kind of narration would you have needed? Uh, the satellite thing is is set up right from the outset. The helicopter arriving, the crowds, the adoration, the lays around his neck. I think you're right. Everything from the get-go, probably down to our buddy Marty Pesetta, was set up really well. And the, um, the excitement was really heightened. And I think viewers at home, it was something to watch. I could imagine silence in the living rooms. People are watching. And it was must have been pretty exciting. I agree. The opening is very well done. Referring to, uh, once again, Dave Marsh, who uh, we quoted in the last episode, he wasn't quite as enamoured with the television, the expanded television version, as he was with a satellite. Uh, he wrote that he thought the delay actually diminished the impact. He didn't like the Hawaiian scenery, which, uh, by the way, was provided by United Airlines. He uh, particularly didn't like what he referred to as the tractor in the cane field, which which I assume he means is that yellow pickup that was just uh, uh, shown during early morning rain in the uh, insert. He also wrote that it missed much of Elvis's onstage energy, overused the multi-screen montages, and actually made Elvis appear weirdly distanced from his audience. Got to be honest, I'm not sure if, that I agree with any of that at all, but um, how do you see what Dave Marsh wrote? Yeah, no, I, I have to agree with you. Um, it seems... The performance is still the performance. I can understand from a, maybe a critical standpoint the television aspect of it. I mean, we talked a little bit about the inserts and about how a little bit stilted they are. The scenery, yeah, I mean, it, it might have given Dave some flashbacks, some nightmare flashbacks of all the Elvis films that a lot of them were just travel logs showing a lot of footage. And Dave might have thought, here we are again sh showing me all this you know, life on the island sort of things where 
the performance itself that he saw was was so magnificent that that was likely all that he wanted. So I guess I can understand that, but it is television. It is the 70s. So I don't think it's it was very odd or, or strange for that time. But it, it, I can understand that he thinks it might have detracted a bit just from the raw energy of the performance itself. I mean, he also makes the point that the uh, particular, the multi-screen montages really date it to the 70s. But I mean, you've made the point yeah. about, you know, I guess the dangers or, or falling into the trap of being a little revisionist. And I mean, it is what it is. It was 1973. It really was a, a stunning piece of television, really. Um, sure, yeah, One of the things yeah. that's interesting, and we know that Marty Pesetta, when he was planning the special and uh, when he uh, told Elvis that he needed to lose a little bit of weight because he wanted to really use the close-ups, and uh, he really, uh, he was really true to his word. There's there's some really great uh, close-ups of Elvis superimposed on some wider shots of, of the stage and the audience. A lot of uh, angles where the camera is actually on the, on the arena floor looking up, so Elvis is sort of, you know, appearing as this giant. Really, I think if you were Colonel Parker looking at that, you must have been absolutely ecstatic at the way Elvis was presented in close-up and with those angles. I mean, it was just, I don't know, I, I can't imagine a star being presented in a more favourable light. I mean, Elvis, of course, was looking great and the costume was great and all everything was great, but certainly the um, the camera angles, it just, it just presented him so well, didn't it? Well, sure it did. I mean, why did Marty Pacetta say to Elvis, you need to move and you need to lose weight? Because Marty Pacetta knew that Presley, at the heights of his magnetism and power, was a little bit leaner and moved on stage. He knew that to get the most out of this star, he needs to do these two things and, and he needs to be shot in a certain way. So, no fool Marty. I, I distinctly recall a couple of uh, close-ups of Elvis's profile and you you see the, not the sound ridiculous, but you see the magnificence of the man's face, the, the line of his nose, the cheekbones. This camera could have stayed right there the whole time, but I, I know what you mean about the shots from the crowd. It was interesting. Crowd's eye view for one thing. And again, it's a bit of a commercial for future concerts. Here's here's the spectacle. It might not be quite like this in future shows, but you see him up there. The, the, the crowd is engaged. They're enamored of him. He's stalking the stage up there. Good shots from back there as well. So Marty knew that with Elvis, he had a wonderful visual. So then he shot it as such. So the product was was on display in a really good way, which is which was good for everybody. I think it all came together, didn't it? From the music to the costume, the production design, the lighting, everything just came together really beautifully. And I, I think it really is, um, as a whole, it really is a testament to the talent of everybody to actually bring it together. And it's of its time too. We talk about dated. Well, me me. I live dated. I want something to look old, old school. So, I mean, it's not, it, we didn't want some sort of visionary Stanley Kubrick sort of presentation that we look at today and said, oh, it could have been released today. That's, that would have flown in the face of Elvis and his times. So, the fact that it does look a little bit 73 split screen and the massive bell bottoms he's got on, I mean, that's kind of part of the thing, man. That's what we want. So, you're right. Everything, everything. Everything came together. The album, of course, as we said, it went to number one. Looking at the album in isolation, 
and perhaps comparing it to some of uh, Elvis's other 70s live albums. How do you think the album actually stands up on its own without the excitement of the visual spectacle? Very well. I think it stands up very well. And I wrote an article a couple of years ago about uh, breaking down Elvis's greatest music from individual decades in the 70s. And I realized that the bulk of the bulk of my list was that's the way it is in Aloha from Hawaii. And I said, well, that's not really, you know, that's not really a good, a good list that, that looks at his whole 70s output. Problem is, problem, Aloha from Hawaii is some of his greatest sounds he made, never mind the visuals. It's comprised of the greatest sounds he made in the 70s a, a lot of the times. We, we spoke about some of the versions that he did there. He didn't, he never bettered before or after. They were just fantastic. Again, because all the aces were in their places and everything was lined up, I mean, that's what you can expect from this, from this performance, from this whole concert. Everybody was on top of their game. So, it comes as no surprise, but the songs themselves, the performances themselves, to answer your question, the record stands alone as well. It, it's fantastic fantastic. It's a wonderful... Visual is great, sure, but again, 73, back in the day, records, people lived and died by their records, so that, so the, the audio was all a lot of them needed, and with that record, they got wonderful, wonderfulness, wonderful performances, and it sounded great with the technology, and it was... It, it stands alone on its own fine. It's just fantastic performances. So, the visual is a bonus. It takes you right up to the stratosphere. But just the songs, just the singing, fantastic. It's an excellent album and an excellent representation of him at one of his peaks. I guess we have to be mindful of the circumstances of Aloha. But probably my favourite live album of the 70s is Live in Memphis, which was recorded at the Mid-South Coliseum the following year. And the reason being, I think, it to actually listen to the two and without having the benefit of the vision yeah. of Aloha, which I think with the vision of Aloha, you can you can see the fun that everybody's having and you can see the happy smiling faces and you can you know that it's a, a brilliant performance. For me, without the vision, it doesn't quite live up to it. And I, I think there is in Live in Memphis, for instance, there is just this sense of it's certainly less inhibited and there's this greater sense of fun now we know that by the time they recorded this in memphis it was the uh, fifth concert actually back in memphis so everybody was very relaxed and uh, you know it was a, a loyal hometown crowd and the circumstances were very very different so i know we have to take that into account but i don't know there's, there's just perhaps something a little restrained about parts of aloha not all of course you know the the show pieces stand up but to get the real sense of fun and and spontaneity and, you know, the sort of the, this, the real joy of an Elvis concert audibly. Yeah, I don't know. For me, I think um, Memphis is, is perhaps the better album. Yeah, that's legit. I can totally understand that. Polish, I mean, let's face it, Aloha from Hawaii, the album, I mean, a better sound polished. So, it's... It's polished. The, the The performances are polished to the brightest, highest sheen you can get. If a big part of Elvis's thing is his his feral animal strength, then sure, that's not going to be dominant in Aloha. It's going to be the polished, the, the 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 magnificent looking man, and the wonderful wonderful performances. Where something like Memphis was just let it all hang out, and I'm back home, and I'm comfortable. I'm looser. I don't feel the pressure of going all over the the world with this show. Yeah, like you say, the fifth night, so things are right in the pocket. So I can understand that for sure. Aloha is just up on a on a pedestal whereas 
I like to often say unburdened by greatness. I mean, the, the life from Memphis doesn't have to be iconic, doesn't have to be magnificent. It's just, let's just be. And that ends up sometimes being some of the, the best stuff you hear is just the loose, fun stuff. So you're right. Good point. We sort of get to some nitty gritty of uh, some of the politics involved now with the album. Now, we know that Felton Jarvis had been, who was Elvis's personal producer, had been unwell Worse than unwell, he was in 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 dire trouble health wise. Elvis had funded a kidney transplant uh, for him, and he was recuperating. Joan Deary uh, is brought in to produce. Now she's a, a very interesting lady. She worked at uh, RCA uh, for over forty years, and she was in charge of A and R administration, artist and repertoire um, under Steve Scholes. She was the first woman manager, director, and executive director uh, in RCA Victor history and uh, she went on to be executive director of all A&R administration and of course an archivist of Elvis's recordings and would would do great work there over the years but uh, she was in charge of bringing this album project together in quadraphonic took a bit of a dim view of Elvis's crew, it would seem, and were quite happy for them to not have the same involvement that they had on other projects. Uh, how do you see that sort of situation that was bubbling in the background? I think it's a little odd because, well, I guess we got to look at 1973. I know that over the next four years, it was increasingly difficult to get Elvis into the studio. And what was even more difficult was to get him in the studio with a, an appropriate comfort level to record and to record at his best. So a guy like Felton is one of the boys, right? I mean, who would he be more comfortable with? But I guess we got to look at the scope and the grandeur of the Aloha project. You know, a lot of big players were brought in to pull this off. So the idea that might have been just a cutthroat business decision about what do we need, you know, a comfortable friend of Elvis, not to diminish Jarvis's abilities, but let's just go for the best. Let's just bring somebody in who's going to who's gonna shine this up as bright as it can get. And we're going to start to talk a little bit about money and a little bit uh, about the back catalogue. Our main reference for this is uh, Peter Gorelnik once again, uh, Careless Love, The Unmaking of Elvis Presley. Now, we refer to him a lot, not necessarily because we agree with all of his assertions, but his research and his primary sources are detailed and uh, he also had very, very good access to, you know, documents and contracts and letters. So he is really for uh, this sort of stuff, I I think, a totally trusted source. And he has said to the effect that um, Joan Deary took a bit of a dim view of uh, the technical ability of Elvis's crew and uh, perhaps uh, their work ethic as well. And uh, she also was very unhappy, apparently, when they went to record at Stax Studios because they, because uh, she felt that the um, the rig at Stax was outdated. And I, I, you sort of get the sense that they really want to tighten control at this point. Yeah. And again, I, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, you had a guy like Lamar Fike running, running the lights, didn't he? I mean, people are not 
with their degrees from school for working with Elvis. It's not so much they've they've learned it on the fly. I mean, that was the way it was back in the day as well. Let's not forget just an Elvis world. It wasn't like this, but maybe it was time to go to the to go to the next level and i'm and i mean they i don't understand the part about the stacks uh, you know a lot of fantastic records came out of stacks but you know state of the art is state of the art no matter what year it is and and people would be come in with fresh eyes see things differently see where things could be changed so I guess that makes sense. Again, they, they must have known by this point, you know, don't rattle Elvis too much. Don't start putting in a bunch of new faces or, and, you know, sure as heck, don't, don't mess with his boys. That's his comfort level, his, his insulation. So it's a little bit of a gamble, I think, but perhaps people like Deary and the, the people that were coming on the scene, they were like the Pesettas and the Binders and the, and the Moments. They thought maybe we could shake it up and make some magic. Maybe he just needs a little bit of freshness. We know historically, maybe it, it didn't quite work out like they had hoped. But I guess you can't blame them for trying and, and for, for finding out what else could be got, you know, from Elvis, could be had if they, if they changed a couple of pieces. So I guess I can understand it. RCA had this gold mine of back catalogue to exploit and they really wanted to and they wanted Colonel Parker out the way because he would be constantly meddling and causing trouble. So they thought the best way to do this would be to go to Colonel Parker with a deal. Essentially what they wanted to do was 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 have complete control of uh, releasing the material. Um, now this is interesting just looking at some numbers here, Gary, about their earnings or Elvis's earnings from record royalties at that time. And this is from uh, Garolnik. Elvis received on average somewhere between 400000 and 500000 a year in domestic royalties with an estimated 33% additional in foreign payments. Now, I know that was a lot of money in 1973 and, you know, it's a lot of money now, but considering Elvis's place in recording history or his success, it, it's it's not a huge amount, is it? When you consider that Graceland costs six figures to run every month, Graceland and the touring operation and Elvis Presley Enterprises. Um, now, this is, this is not all of his income, of course. This is purely record royalties, but it's really not a huge amount, is it? No, it's not. And it, again, it's it's easy to look back with our current eyes. And again, so many people will say that um, because of Elvis Presley, because of his career, because of the highs and the lows, because of the positives and the negatives, people know how to have a career nowadays. People know how to function. People have been stung, the Bruce Springsteen's, the the Billy Joels, you look at the copyrights on their records, and after they've learned their hard lessons, the copyrights just say Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen. People look after their things better now because of, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is because of what happened to Elvis Presley. I mean, people don't have managers today like Colonel Tom Parker because of Elvis Presley and what he went through and because of the the stuff that has come out. So the money thing is funny. I mean, nobody lived more extravagantly than Elvis. Nobody had less of an idea what a what a loaf of bread cost than Elvis Presley. Nobody had less of a concept of money and 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 what things cost than Elvis because he just spent. So that obviously is factored in too with his earnings. He, he had to make, you know, maybe millions a month to, 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 to really stay afloat. So, never mind, also, we can get into the weeds about the business practices of RCA and 
And of course, the colonel's business practices as well. The colonel certainly wasn't hurting for money either. So while it sounds like a lot, you're right. I mean, when you compare it to other expenses and other, you know, possible paychecks for certain things, whether it's films or or tours, etc., it doesn't seem like a whole lot. So it's another thing to dig into in Elvis's story, the, the money he made and the money he didn't make too. So it is interesting that you talk about records, the estate still today loves to trot out numbers about the ridiculous boatloads of records the man has sold over the years. And yet these are the type of numbers and this is right in what you might consider his prime, certainly it's still prime earning years for him. And these are the numbers. So it is pretty interesting. The idea of anybody trying to freeze Colonel out, that was interesting you said that. I, I Like, I don't know who they think they're up against. But anyways, uh, you're right about the, the, the numbers. They seem pretty low for a guy of Elvis's stature. Rocco Laganestra came up with a figure of $3 million to basically buy the rights to the back catalogue through negotiations that would go up to $5.4 million. You know, there's this sort of, I guess, this urban myth or, or this general thought that the Colonel was on a 50-50 arrangement with Elvis. It wasn't that simple. In fact, as we're going to find out, it was a whole lot more complicated, perhaps in some ways not as bad and in other ways actually worse. So, Gary, there's some stuff here that I'd like to run through with you. And honestly, if you can make head nor tail of this, um, you are a lot smarter than me, which I think probably our listeners would have realised by now anyway. Um <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let, let's try and get our heads around this a little bit. From now on, all record income would be split down the middle, with touring remaining at a two-thirds, one-third division. Now, there was $400,000 tacked onto the $5.4 at the front end and divided 75-25, and $5 million that represented the actual buyout was treated as a side deal to be divided equally. Now, here we go. There was, in addition, a new seven-year contract guaranteeing $500,000 a year against royalty earnings, two new albums, and four singles, which Elvis would be contractually obligated to provide each year. Now, as you alluded to, Gary, this became a, a very contentious issue, and uh, he did towards the end fail to live up to that. Now, moreover, where are we? Moreover, at the conclusion of the seven-year term, Elvis and the Colonel would each receive a $100,000 bonus not to be counted against royalties, and the Colonel got a number of contractual guarantees of his own. He was So here we go. I'm not sure that they did actually succeed in getting rid of him. He was to receive a $50,000 a year consulting fee for the duration of the contract for assisting RCA in the development of merchandising and promotion for supplying RCA with merchandising and promotional material, plus $10,000 a year for exploiting merchandising rights on the expired contract, and for his assistance in helping RCA record tours in planning, promotion, and merchandising in connection with the operation of the tour agreement. For the duration of the new contract, he was to receive a grand total of $1.35 million, plus 10% of RCA record tours profits off the top, all in all, the Colonel was guaranteed $1.75 million on top of his $2.6 million share of the buyout itself and the $1.75 million that he would get as his share of the new recording contract, which meant that the Colonel would receive roughly $6 million to Elvis's $4.5 million from all the deals combined. 
Um, what do you reckon about that? Yeah, you need a visual aid and you know, uh, well, I joke, but really, if you put up a, you know, a chart, a chart is needed with arrows, and most of the arrows point to point to Colonel and the nearest bank. Like it's it's when you were reading that, I was thinking of managers and their clients, and I, I didn't get what I got was business partners. Uh, uh, they were, you know, they were in business together. One guy did one thing and one guy did the other thing. Now, Joe on the street doesn't care one iota for Colonel Tom Parker, but he loves Elvis Presley and his records and his movies. When you get into the weeds about Elvis wanting to get out of contracts with Colonel and Colonel saying, okay, but here's what I've done and here's what it will take for you to get rid of me, which is the same thing RCA is running into here. This is why he needs his due in some, he needs to be looked at honestly and let's talk straight about Colonel. Colonel, but that also includes the business. Alvis didn't care one iota about business. He, he, he didn't care nothing about anything in, in that realm at all. So he needed, and I, I alluded earlier to people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard who went by the boards very, very early before the 50s were even over, really, because there was nobody as ruthless as Colonel Tom Parker looking after their interests. So the craziness of the Colonel, the craziness of RCA... And the way Elvis was handled as an artist, we can look back at it and say, so poor. And yet, look at the size of Elvis as a performer, as part of the American, the fabric of American life. There can To think that he could have been bigger and could have meant more to people today staggers the mind. But when you read all these numbers and all this business... It just shows you that Elvis was an industry. There was, there was so much going on that they could even spit out numbers like this. And there were so many deals like this. But Elvis and him, Elvis and Colonel Tom seemed to be partners. And people like RCA knew we want to get rid of Colonel Tom. So we're going to throw him boatloads of money and put him on, on salary, consulting fees and stuff. That, that's not getting rid of him. That's maybe maneuvering him out of the way, but he's still drawing boatloads of money and I love that that they have to go to Colonel for the, the merchandise, the promotional material, which Colonel basically controlled because of his side deals with every everybody everywhere. So it's fascinating to read those numbers because it was a partnership. Elvis just, well, just, all he did was sing like he did and perform like he did. But the business, I mean, it had to be done by somebody. And this is how much money there was to be made and how many people were in line to get their share, to get their angles looked after, to get their back end looked after. So the numbers are staggering. But this is, this is the size of Elvis World that we could spend, you know, days, weeks looking at things like these business deals and analyzing Colonel Tom and his his role in all of these things. It's just fascinating. So there's some really interesting numbers you throw at us. Joan Deary was uh, looking after the releases of the older material and preparing some of this back catalogue uh, to be re-released. They set in set in plan or, or set in place a schedule for a series of historical releases. Now, this is where it becomes a little difficult. It appears that it was going to be in direct conflict with the new product. And not only that, Joan Deary had gone ahead with these plans without consulting the Colonel. 
she was putting together initially a package called Elvis, a legendary performer. There was going to be a deluxe booklet um, old with uh, pictures, old recording pages, session notes, you know, something we would expect perhaps uh, in later years in some of these CD box sets. And the Colonel was essentially squeezed out. He um, obviously was not going to take that lying down, went to, to Rocco Laganestra and um, perhaps politely threatened him that well they were going to fall out over this and RCA then made some concessions they actually delayed the release of the anthology album so it would not conflict with uh, Elvis's new product according to Peter Goralnik here and uh, as we said all of these figures and, and, and this material was from Peter Goralnik because we uh, because we trust his um, primary sources uh, the album release was uh, quickly postponed until January and the Colonel was henceforth included not just as an advisor but as a paid consultant so if they really wanted to squeeze him out, it didn't work. No, it, it didn't work. And he's too enmeshed to be squeezed out. He's too enmeshed in perhaps even as a comfort thing for Elvis. He could just cruise and live the way he wanted to live. Fireworks on the lawn and, and motorcycles and whatnot because he knew he had a ruthless cutthroat manager looking after him and he likely even knew... Colonel is looking after me, maybe second behind the Colonel, but I am more than comfortable, so I'm okay with that. That could also be a thing too. So, But the Colonel is so enmeshed that, I mean, RCA should have known. I guess it's worth a try if, if you can maneuver Colonel out of the way. But the back catalog thing is interesting to me because I understand the the money to be made on somebody's back catalog. I can understand that, but you almost take the performer's legs out if he's still out there working. Like you say, there's competing product. I remember when Sinatra left Columbia and started releasing for Capital. Well, anything Columbia had in the vaults or anything they had, period. Of course, they were throwing out records left and right. The same with when Jerry Lee Lewis left Sun and had country music hits in the early 70s while Sam Phillips went to the vaults and anything country that Jerry had recorded he put together on a record so but then you get competing and, and the fans get confused who is this performer like what is his thing what is his bag so and and it, it run the risk of making Elvis a uh, you know glorifying his past it becomes a Beach Boys thing nothing that's going on today matters as much as look at this legendary performer stuff look at this old the old songs that he did, wasn't he great? It becomes past tense. So it's a big battle because there's money to be made, but it also flies in the face of the money that can be made in the present going forward while you're reducing me as an artist. It didn't really work that way for Elvis, but the back catalog thing is fascinating with any artist really, but no, Colonel was never going to be outfoxed by amateurs like RCA executives come on versus the colonel and and we should say too that you, you know from from what we can uh, understand Elvis was not basically a passenger or you know excluded from this he was involved in it understood what was happening and was fully supportive of the colonel's actions and in fact bragged to some of the guys afterwards that you know the old colonel had done it for them again so it certainly wasn't an issue that he was um, an unwitting participant or or an 
unwitting victim of this. He, he, you know, he knew as far as we can see, he knew what was going on. That's true. And like I say, he was comfortable enough. Sure, if he had really wanted to expend the energy, he could have sat down with Colonel with papers and said, what's going on here? But like you say, he was bragging to the guys and he was okay. It's a, it's a sort of an interesting concept the or dilemma, the fact that he was now competing with his younger self because really after Aloha, the record sales did taper off and, you know, they, they, were, they were solid, but they, they certainly, the new material would never reach the heights of the old. So, and of course, he really became a touring act then and the money was to be made in touring. For instance, on their on the New Year's Eve concert that he did at the end of 1975 on a freezing icy night in Pontiac, Michigan, uh, 62,000 people. It was a record gross for one night. It was over $800,000 for one night. That was a, a record for a solo artist at that time. So the money from the touring and from Vegas and uh, the merchandising really was uh, rolling in. So it, it certainly wasn't all bad news financially, but of course, in order to keep that money rolling in, you've got to keep working. You've got to keep touring because both Elvis and the Colonel did tend to spend it as quickly as they made it, didn't they? Well, they sure did. And they knew where the there was money to be made. So record deals, current and going forward record deals, you know, might not have been, they might have understood that it wasn't where the money was to be made and it wasn't, you know, a high, high priority. Colonel had control over the tours and the merchandising, and I think he likely knew that's where the money was. Joe Fan on the street, he sees Elvis coming to town. He's going. He's not going based on the song that's on the charts right now. If there's a song on the charts right now, sure, that helps. Again, it's it's all promotion. But at this point, Elvis was Elvis. And the tours, the live performances, it was a thing. And people, you know, any fan that you stick a mic in will tell you about seeing Elvis here, seeing Elvis there, the concerts through the 70s, the touring was the thing. So, yeah, it became a different thing. It be, he became a different type of performer in the 70s. And, you know, I defend my my list of best songs from the 70s being, being top-loaded with That's the Way It Is and Aloha from Hawaii, because while there's other good stuff that he recorded, the song Promised Land is uh, one of my two or three favorite Elvis songs, the best performance he ever put on record. One of my favorite songs of all time. So that was still to come. But beyond that and a few others, yeah, looking back, we can see that, you know, hit records and and and, and wonderful recorded performances, that, that was kind of over. So Colonel knew that touring and merchandising was where the money was going to be at, I think. I often um, wonder, I mean, I... I really do like Moody Blue from the uh, that was recorded at the uh, the Jungle Room sessions in in 76 and then uh, was obviously the title track of his his final album and I, yes. I, I often wonder just you know that obviously that has a, an immortality I often wonder yeah. how that would have been seen had Elvis's career progressed beyond that there or not that would be seen as another suspicious minds or if I can dream or just yeah. one of these signature era defining songs because I, I I think that is really one of the that for me, that's one of the, the great songs of the 70s. I agree. I really like the record. It was, it was one that I, I bought early in my, my early days of collecting his albums. I had it on cassette and I really like the album. It is typically mishmashy, uh, live, not live studio. I think one of the live performances too is like 74. So it, it even spans a few years. But what has 
come to be known as the Jungle Room Sessions. Yeah, there were some great records there. Very different. Very different. Even his voice was very different. And if fans could have, you know, accepted a change. It's funny, though. I always think of Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain from the Jungle Room Sessions. Another perfect example of the blend that he did his whole career, the country, but with this gritty soul R&B feeling, the bass line itself in that song. Still at the end, he was doing the same sort of thing, blending country and R&B and, and blues and soul. So that record is indicative of what he did best, really, even though he maybe didn't sound as good as he had before. But it might have ended up being, like you say, a, a new and different direction. And it's just hard to it's hard to conjecture what he would have done because knowing what we know now it was so not sustainable the the shape and the health he was in at the end it, it i people people ask me and i always say I, I think he would have had to have gone away somewhere for a time disappeared and gotten back to a, a mental and a physical health that he could go on living but i kind of think country Country music might have been a thing for him. It still would have had the Elvis stamp on it, but it's an interesting point about Moody Blues. It's a it's a crisp, robust recording, and and the production, of course, the overdubs always seem to work somehow, which is fascinating too, because strings and orchestras and whatnot wasn't always Elvis's thing. He recorded with his group, and that was it. But yeah, it's a good record, and that that song itself, Moody Blue. I think you're right. It 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 might have been looked at differently, you know, had he not died. And that was the last, you know, album and the last single and Way Down was on the charts. So interesting to conjecture that. We could do it all, all day for sure. Earlier in the uh, in the series, you um, said that really Aloha from Hawaii was probably his, his last high-profile, great artistic triumph. Um, he, of course, continued to work Right up until his death, you know, when he when he passed away, he was due to fly out to Portland, Maine uh, to begin another tour. Was actually going to end that tour with two shows back in Memphis. He was then booked to open yeah. the 5,000 seat Hilton Pavilion as part of a, a big refurbishment of the Las Vegas Hilton. So, you know, there was there was work stretching out ahead of him when when he passed away. It's it's worth just maybe just briefly talking about the remaining few years on the road. One thing that I do take a little issue with Peter Gorolnik in Careless Love is I don't think he's entirely fair in the way that he selectively uses some of the concert reviews to create a picture the final few years. There were certainly some off nights, but if you listen to some of the unedited bootlegs of the band and of the Beach Boys and many of these other groups on, on the circuit, they had some off nights too. But even up until the very end and even the very last concert at uh, Market Square Arena, which contrary to what was claimed, was not uh, the uh, Elvison, you know, the last concert was not the Elvison concert television special. You know, there were some great shows, great tight shows, powerful shows right up to the end. In as much as he did struggle at times, I think the decline has been a little exaggerated. Um, how do you see it? I think that the narrative is basically sound because when you were talking about the future, the shows that were planned and booked that Elvis never lived to perform. I'm shaking my head thinking, 
I, you know, there's no way, like I, I can't envision Elvis Presley having lived one day longer than he did, uh, knowing what we know about the final years and his health. And you, you referenced Elvis in concert. The visual there is much talked about, particularly by non-fans who like to point out the decline. We're seeing a performer die before our eyes. Like, I don't quite look at it that way, but let's face it. He was in very poor health, and it's amazing that he lived as long as he did. The narrative is the downward spiral, which again, like I say, is sound. And it fits the narrative to say the concerts were getting erratic. He was not sounding good. I mean, you can hear it from from later live recordings. A simple thing like breath control, holding a note, um, there, there's incredibly different from even two or three years earlier. But like you say... He was still, he still had dynamism wired into his being. He could still turn it on when he was out there in front of fans. And I think even in Guralnik's book, while we see negative reviews of shows and whatnot, there's still interviews with his band members and whatnot that we've read in other sources as well that say, oh man, there was some nights where we were all in the pocket. We, he was on fire. He just... He really delivered. So, in a way, the guy could perform in his sleep, and I think he often maybe did. And so, the, the highs and lows were related more to just highs and lows. Like you reference a bunch of other groups and bands. It happens to everybody. Sometimes they're just not on. He had a lot of reasons to not be on night to night, just his health and his life. And I always, I always think of the mental aspect of the round and round. Maybe that's why he died when he did, because he's thinking, I got to do this again. I got to go on another tour and go round and round and round. I'm not getting anything out of this at all. I'm just supporting a lot of people, which would have kept him going as well. I can't just quit and look after my health. People are going to lose their homes. So there's a lot going on. The final years, you know, it's a I always think of Bono from U2. He taught me, he actually said in one interview, you know, you cannot have the Elvis myth without the decline, without the years. It's part of the story. And like I say, countless artists have benefited from Elvis's wonderful songs in 56, but they've also benefited from his maybe being fleeced by Colonel Tom, by by the concert merry-go-round, by the health issues. He taught people that way too. He was you know, his life was a lesson for others, what to do and what not to do. So the final years definitely could be a podcast series on their own. Fascinating stuff and not all bad, like you say. Okay, well, we do want to uh, we do want to end on a on a positive note because we've been talking about this wonderful, wonderful entertainment event about what happened behind the scenes and um, about all of the really incredible, talented people that came together to make it something special. So, Gary, do you have any final thoughts or final comments on Aloha from Hawaii? The 70s is not to be discarded. Like we just said, a lot of the, for reasons that are maybe kind of negative as well, but Let's face it, man, the 70s contain Aloha from Hawaii and, and those performances and those images, that's, and that's almost right up to the end. And you mentioned Moody Blue as well. We can talk about other, other peaks that he was able to achieve. But almost near the end, in 1973, he conquered the world again and there was no, there's no uh, shine that's been added to it uh, since his death or you know, 50 years down the line. Looking back on it as what it was in 1973, it is nothing short of a triumph of sight and sound. 
But again, we talked about the product. At the core of it all, the spectacle and the the numbers and the sales and the, the billions of people, at the core of it all is a, is a fantastic looking man singing in a stunning fashion, wonderful arrangements of great songs with a crack band behind him. It is the pinnacle of what he could do, particularly at that point in his life. So even if you look at the 70s as a whole, including all artists, it is definitely a highlight. It is iconic in the extreme. And at the base of all that, it's not just spectacle or carnival. It's a man exhibiting an extraordinary craft and a wonderful gift singing wonderful songs wonderfully. Well, I think that's a perfect sentiment to end on. Gary, it's been a real pleasure and a thrill to really get to the bottom of uh, Elvis Aloha from Hawaii. And I would really like to thank you for your efforts helping us to put this together and going to so much effort. And also and also for your really wonderful insights and commentary on the music that we had in episode two, which is the real Elvis fans episode, I think. My pleasure, George. Thank you very much for your hard work. It's wonderful to come and talk about Elvis with a guy like yourself. And I look forward to future stuff we can do together. We really do hope you've enjoyed this three-part special on Elvis Aloha from Hawaii as much as we enjoyed researching it and putting it together for you. Now, don't forget the newsletter. There's one for each episode in this brief series. Um, In this one, we also have a bit of a look at the album art for the double album and the single Steamroller Blues. We didn't really get to talk about that in the podcast, but it's interesting that they had this iconic image of Elvis who had never looked better in this stunning jumpsuit design and they didn't use it on either the album or the single so uh, we'll just have a a bit of a look at that and don't forget you can keep up with Gary's work at soulrideblog.com lots of great stuff there on Elvis and the Beach Boys film and book reviews really is a wonderful site Um, Gary is also on social media as well and you can hear him at the Cocktail Nation podcast cocktailnation.net with his regular segment Words with Wellsy we are on Tumblr and Facebook our newsletter is on Substack you can get in touch with us there or at the deck four webpage or on the podcast platforms where formatting allows our policy on the fair use of copyrighted material for commentary and critique can be found at the deck four webpage thanks to steve collins for technical support thanks to gainesville for writing and performing our theme music and thank you so much for listening original music by gainesville keeping the spirit of tom petty alive in europe and playing great classic rock and roll check them out at gainesville-band.de and link to their socials the deck for podcast is also brought to you in association with tellmewheretogo.com if you love travel now more than ever it's important to listen to the experts the Armstrong and Burton book series Dark Secrets Hoard Powerful Families in 1980s Britain available from Amazon and book retailers everywhere find out more link to the Deck 4 web and Facebook pages and subscribe to the Deck 4 newsletter all at georgefairbrother.com Music